Welcome to this eViral Hepatitis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of eViral Hepatitis Review. We're here today with Dr. Brianna Norton and Dr. Matthew Akiyama. They're both assistant professors of medicine at Albert Einstein College of Medicine and Montefiore Medical Center. And we're here to talk about how to more effectively treat hepatitis C in people who inject drugs. Eviral Hepatitis Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. Learning objectives for this audio program include describe best practices for treating HCV among PWID and explain the impact of injection drug use on adherence, on cure rates, and on the risk of reinfection after successful HCV therapy. Both our guests have disclosed that they have no relationship with any product or service relevant to today's discussion. They have further indicated that their presentation will not reference the unlabeled or unapproved use of any drugs or products. Dr. Norton, Dr. Akiyama, thank you both for joining us today. Happy to be here. Also very happy to be here. In your recently published eViral Hepatitis Review newsletter issue, you analyze the current data explaining how injection drug use impacts treatment adherence and the risk of hepatitis C reinfection. Today, I'd like us to focus on how this information can impact clinical practice. Uh, so start us out, if you would please, Dr. Norton, with a patient scenario. This is a 29-year-old male who tested hep C positive at a local syringe exchange program. He is currently injecting heroin and unstably housed. So he wants to be treated for hep C, and he has F0, F1 fibrosis. He's HIV negative. He currently has a nurse practitioner that treats his asthma at a community-based clinic that's near his shelter. And he states that his nurse practitioner also treats hepatitis C. So this individual was screened because he meets the screening criteria due to his history of injection drug use. Yes, definitely. Injection drug use is the number one risk factor for hepatitis C. However, new national guidelines support hepatitis C screening for all adults greater than 18 years of age. These guidelines are endorsed by the Infectious Diseases Society of America, the American Association for the Study of the Liver, and most recently, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force has issued recommendations for screening all adults. This is a relatively new recommendation, so important for everyone to be aware of. So these latest guidelines from the IDSA, AASLD, and the task force all support screening PWID. But do they also support treating people who, like this patient, are continuing to actively inject drugs? Dr. Norton? Yes, they absolutely support the treatment of active people who inject drugs. Both the Infectious Disease Society of America, as well as the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease, recommend treatment in this population, whether on opioid use disorder treatment, on substance use disorder treatment, or actively using drugs. Absolutely, they recommend treatment in this population. Can you tell us, uh, briefly if you would please, what this decision was based on? Well, there's a number of reasons that the national guidelines support treatment of people who use drugs. And that really is, is that we know that hep C curates among people who use drugs, both in substance use disorder treatment and without substance use disorder treatment and actively using drugs, have very high curates and often similar to people who don't use drugs. Importantly, there's been two very large trials studying people who use drugs. In one trial, the PREVAIL trial, 150 people who inject drugs who were receiving methadone treatment were enrolled in the study, received DAA treatment, and 94% of these people did obtain a hep C cure. 
What's important to know is that despite being on methadone, 60% of these people at baseline did have a positive urine toxicology for illicit drug use, yet the cure rates were very high. Now, there's another trial, the Simplify trial, which is an international trial of active injecting drug users. 100% of people had injected drugs in the last three months, and 75% of those people had injected drugs in the last month. That's a very active injecting drug use population. And they all received hep C treatment with direct acting antivirals. And again, the cure rates were 94%. So we have very good data to support that even among active drug users, hep C cure rates are high in the era of DAAs. Importantly, we also know that mathematical models suggest that treating this population can reduce community viral load, reduce the transmission of hep C, reduce new infections, and then reduce the prevalence of hep C within the community. So it's very important to treat people who inject drugs, and certainly there is data to support that. So we know that hep C treatment is successful, but is that because of adherence to treatment or despite non-adherence to treatment? Uh, Let me rephrase that question, Dr. Akiyama. Are you worried that this patient's ongoing drug use is going to interfere with his adherence to his HCV treatment? So I'll move on to adherence after a brief discussion about homelessness. So this patient also reports that he is undomiciled, and homelessness actually can pose a challenge since undomiciled individuals may have competing priorities and unstable means to store medications as well as adhere to their medicine. So really for patients like this patient, all means should be used to increase adherence, and adherence support should be implemented if possible. There are well-studied interventions for adherence support, including directly observed therapy, peer support, and group interventions to improve adherence. That said, adherence has been reported to be high even among people who use drugs. For example, to simplify a study, 11% of patients had at least seven consecutive missing days, and all of these people still achieved sustained virologic response. Some studies, such as the PREVAIL study, have reported 78% adherence and very high sustained biologic response rates. So the take-home point here is that adherence does not have to be perfect in order to achieve SVR or sustained biologic response, and clinicians should encourage adherence but continue patients through treatment completion even if adherence is poor because DAAs are very highly effective. Dr. Norton, let me ask you a what-if kind of question. What if this patient has a female sexual partner and she's also infected with hepatitis C? That's a great question. So we certainly know that heterosexual transmission of hep C remains low. But really the key in that scenario is that we know that partners often share drug paraphernalia with each other, not only partners, but friends. And it is very important that when we think about treating people for hep C, we also think about treating their drug-using network. And the reason for it is that we have people within the same injection drug network, and some of these people are being treated and others are not, certainly transmission can continue. And we know for certain that partners like sexual or friendship partners or partners who live together often definitely share drug paraphernalia. So if you can get a person in with their partner, treat them simultaneously, make sure that both of them become hep C undetectable, you can then be sure that even if they do end up sharing again, they cannot transmit the disease. And again, we know that mathematical models do suggest that if we treat not 
a little bit of injection drug users, but say at least 8 to 10% of people who inject drugs in one community, we really can reduce the incidence and then prevalence. That is how we are going to achieve hep C elimination. So I think when we're thinking about treating a person who injects drugs, the best thing to is not just treat them, but treat their partners and try to treat their injection drug using networks as well. Where should this patient be sent for treatment? Some clinicians would say the only appropriate place is hepatology. Dr. Akiyama, your thoughts? That was the traditional thinking that specialty care was the appropriate level of care for people with hepatitis C for treatment. That is more a sort of vestige of the interferon era where treatment was more complex. In the current era with direct-acting antivirals, this patient should really be treated where he is most likely to link to care, initiate treatment, and obtain a cure. Decentralization of hep C care and treatment is likely necessary if we are to approach hep C elimination. An example of this was the CHAMP study that showed that even for patients within the healthcare system, linkage to hep C care remained difficult. So any interventions such as peer navigation, transportation, fare cards, or case management to aid this patient to linkage to care is really important. Another example of a study that showed high rates of SVR when patients were treated by non-specialists was the ASCEND study. This included nurse practitioners and primary care providers treating hep C, and high rates of SVR were shown for patients being cared for under these types of providers. So treating this patient where he is already accessing care is likely the best intervention to increase his chance of treatment initiation and cure. Well, thank you for that case and discussion, doctors. And we'll return with Dr. Brianna Norton and Dr. Matthew Akiyama from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in just a moment. Thank you for listening to this eViral Hepatitis Review Podcast. If you're unfamiliar with our program, we're a combination newsletter and podcast continuing educational series. We're available online without cost or prerequisite. Eviral Hepatitis Review newsletters are published every other month. Each issue focuses on a specific area of importance in the care of patients with viral hepatitis and is authored by an expert clinician who reviews the current literature and provides commentary. In the month following each newsletter, a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you've been listening to, brings that expert perspective to translating the new information into clinical practice. Continuing education credit for eViral Hepatitis Review is jointly provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For more information about eViral Hepatitis Review, please go to our website, eviralhepatitisreview.org. Welcome back to this eViral Hepatitis Review podcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Brianna Norton and Dr. Matthew Akiyama from Montefiore Medical Center and the Albert Einstein College of Medicine about the real-world clinical aspects of treating hepatitis C in people who inject drugs. Uh, So if you would please, Dr. Akiyama, take us back to the clinic with another patient scenario. Sure. So this is a 55-year-old female in methadone maintenance who tests positive for HCV. She has F3 fibrosis. She does not use illicit opioids, but she does smoke crack cocaine on and off, and she would like to be treated for her hepatitis C. Now, this is similar to what I asked you about our previous patient. Where should this woman be treated? In her methadone program, is that appropriate? Or should she be referred to a hepatology clinic? What are your thoughts? If possible, this patient should be treated within the system where she is already accessing care. An example of this is the PREVAIL study that showed really great outcomes. And so having many other observational studies when PWID are treated in methadone programs really is the way to go. 
This patient can also take advantage of DOT, which is directly observed therapy with her direct acting antiviral therapy when she receives her methadone, which is an intervention that has shown to increase adherence in the PREVAIL study. That said, there are challenges to integrating hepatitis C treatment into methadone. For example, many programs do not have existing infrastructure in terms of providers capable of treating HCV and methadone programs, as well as laboratory personnel and other factors. Moreover, institutional buy-in really needs to be there to ask providers like nurses to assist with dispensing DOT medications beyond methadone. I want to talk about reinfection, Dr. Norton. After a patient achieves cure, What are her chances of becoming reinfected with hepatitis C? So this patient does have a chance of getting reinfected through crack cocaine smoking, but it is actually much lower than injection drug use. I think what's important to remember, however, is that this person is on methadone and does have opioid use disorder. And we know that that's a chronic relapsing disease, and the patient may indeed go back to injection drug use. What's important is that we know that even among people who are actively injecting drugs, reinfection really has been low. So does reinfection exist? Yes. But in the era of DAAs, most reinfection is about five per 100 person years. So what does that mean? That means if we followed 100 people who are cured of hep C, who are people who inject drugs, about five of them would get reinfected in that year. And so that number isn't zero, but it's certainly not very high. And what we also know is that being on opioid use disorder treatment, such as methadone or suboxone, is actually protective against reinfection. So the most important thing is when we treat people who inject drugs, we really need to counsel them on reinfection. We have to tell them that reinfection exists and that they need to take action to prevent it. So what action can they take to prevent it? If they are not in substance use disorder treatment, they can get on substance use disorder treatment, which is protective. If they're continuing to use drugs, they really need to invest in harm reduction. So that means getting new syringes, clean syringes, clean cookers, cotton. We know that hep C unfortunately exists and lives in all of the paraphernalia for drug use. And so all of that must be clean and people must invest in harm reduction measures, not sharing with other people who may be infected. We have to also realize that when we talk to our patients who inject drugs, we must do this in a non-stigmatizing way so that we can have honest conversations about how to prevent reinfection in the future. And certainly, if the patient does indeed get reinfected, we do need to treat them very quickly and efficiently in a non-judgmental manner so that once again, we can reduce the community viral load and reduce their chance of transmitting the disease to other people. So I think in conclusion, reinfection exists, but however, at this point, we think that reinfection is still quite low, about five per 100 person years in the era of DAAs, and we just must educate our patients on how best to prevent reinfection after obtaining hep C cure. I've got a question that I hope I'm not the only one who needs to ask. How does reinfection occur while smoking crack cocaine? I can understand if someone is injecting it, but smoking? You can get hepatitis C through crack cocaine smoking because the pipes are made of glass and they're very hot. 
So what ends up happening is the pipes, when they're being reused over and over, they end up actually breaking. And so that shard glass cuts people's lips. And so if people are heavy crack cocaine users, they often have blisters that are bleeding on their lips. And when people are sharing these sort of broken glass pipes, they can transmit hep C. Again, this is much lower than injection drug use, but it has been known to occur. Another consideration there is that because of stigma, people who use drugs don't always report all of the roots of drugs that they've used. So while this person may report a history of smoking crack cocaine, there may be a history as well of a higher risk mode of transmission like injection drug use. So because of that stigma, which we should really take efforts to reduce for people who use drugs, there is a chance that this person may not have disclosed the injection route. Dr. Akiyama, I've got a what-if to ask you. What if this patient receives treatment at her methadone clinic and she achieves SVR? So now she's cured of her hepatitis C infection. What kind of follow-up care does she need at this point? That's a great question. So given this patient has F3 disease, she should likely be followed with HCC or hepatocellular carcinoma screening. All patients with cirrhosis, which is F4 fibrosis, should receive HCC screening and EGDs, which is an esophagogastroduodenoscopy. And patients who have this degree of disease should be referred to hepatology for their aftercare. Doctors, I want to thank you both for sharing your insight and expertise in today's cases and discussion. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing how what we've talked about today fulfills our learning objectives. So to begin, our first learning objective Best Practices for Treating Hepatitis C Infection Among People Who Inject Drugs. Dr. Akiyama, what do our listeners need to know? So I'd say number one, expedited linkage to care is really crucial. People who inject drugs should be treated in the settings where they are already accessing care, and this has been demonstrated in studies to be effective and really the most effective way to engage people who use drugs into care. I'd say number two, there are good data to support treatment in opioid treatment programs, primary care, as well as correctional settings. These are all settings where care really needs to be delivered if we're going to achieve hep C elimination. We also need to be thinking about treating partners and social networks together. People who are partners of those who are being treated really need to come in as well to be treated in order to prevent transmission between individuals within the same network. We should be providing harm reduction for all who need it. So anyone who has a substance use disorder and is by virtue of that potentially going to put themselves at risk, we need to be providing support for reducing that risk for these populations. Lastly, aftercare must be considered for those with F3 or F4 disease, meaning HCC screening for hepatocellular carcinoma. We also need to be thinking about screening individuals with ongoing risk behavior for hep C reinfection after they've completed treatment. Thank you, Dr. Akiyama. And our second learning objective, Dr. Norton, the impact of injection drug use on adherence, on cure rates, and on the risk of reinfection after successful HCV therapy. So I think the take-home points are that hep C cure rates are high, even among people who are actively using drugs. We also know that hep C medication adherence is also high, even among people who are actively using drugs. However, we also know that non-perfect adherence still leads to great SVR rates or great hep C cure rates in the era of highly effective direct-acting antiviral medications. So I think the message for clinicians is keep treating, 
Get your patient to treatment completion, even if you think their adherence is non-perfect. Finally, reinfection is real. It will occur, but it remains low. Even for those who are actively injecting drugs, we really must discuss reinfection with our patients, refer people to harm reduction, refer people to substance use disorder treatment, all known to reduce reinfection. And again, treat partners together so that we can reduce transmission. From the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and Montefiore Medical Center, Dr. Brianna Norton, Dr. Matthew Akiyama, thank you both for participating in this eViral Hepatitis Review Podcast. Thank you so much. We really appreciate this opportunity. Thanks, Bob. It's really been a pleasure, and thanks to all the listeners who have tuned in as well. For eViral Hepatitis Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at eviralhepatitisreview.org. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the eViral Hepatitis Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME and CE credit emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with viral hepatitis. This activity has been developed for primary care physicians, gastroenterologists, infectious disease specialists, OBGYNs, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and nurses, and other clinicians diagnosing or managing patients with viral hepatitis. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the joint providership of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuous nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute of Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eViral Hepatitis Review via email, please go to our website, eviralhepatitisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. Eviral Hepatitis Review is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.